sandcastles at high tide. As I drove south to Denver in sunshine skies and on clear roads, I brimmed with optimism. While I didn't have much money, I had enough to keep going. And while I would have to invest in myself in order to grow it over time, worrying about money while I still had some sounded emotionally expensive. And I had known I would be flying blind with low fuel for a while. While I didn't have systematic ways of meeting people, I had someone to meet today, Agati, who was hosting me for two nights in downtown Denver. Moreover, I had the desire to widen my sights to maximum width and keep my eyes and ears peeled for any spontaneous long distance or eventual opportunities for connection. I didn't have a plan exactly, but I was firmly grounded in my newly resolved commitment to keep going. I would need to accept the ambiguity inherent in this developmental and exploratory experience, and I couldn't get too caught in wondering if I was wasting time. That would have been wasting time. Deep connections are productive, but so is quiet solitude and everything in between. Ride the waves as they come. Embrace what is. I scrolled on my phone through recent Instagram notifications. My latest Instagram post on words by Schwa about sitting in the despair had been well received and I was always grateful when my words resonated with others. You might not like to hear that I'm checking my phone while driving, and I of course know and believe that being on my phone while driving is irresponsible as a general rule, but I give myself a pass if both of the following are true. The first condition of being allowed to look at your phone is when you are driving on a relatively straight and empty highway. Straight and empty? No problem. I've lived that way for years. On roads such as these, we might consider promoting the glancing at our phone to the windshield, rear view mirror, and dashboard circuit that our eyeballs are constantly relaying while we drive. We all know we're just looking in the mirror to check ourselves out anyways. That's distracted driving in its purest, our beautiful human face looking at our beautiful human reflection looking back at us. It must be love. When was the last time our driving experience really benefited from looking in the rearview mirror anyways, except in a parking situation? And even then, as we glance into the reflected surroundings, let's be honest, we probably still catch our own eye. I mean, except for that flirting and checking for spinach in our pearlies, we really don't need that mirror, do we? In parking situations, it's a poor substitute for the old faithful. Left hand at 12 o'clock on the wheel, put your right arm on the back of the passenger seat, gently body twist and release a gentle whisper of some wheezing, guttural grunt. As it escapes our lips, we stare out the back window and narrow our eyes with intensity as if we were landing a spaceship neatly on the moon. That mirror isn't there for driving, but it's a third of our habitual eyeball relay we were taught in driving school. It's there because our egos get a little hungry and our ego always eats. So then... I could get a little ego snack from social media instead, right? The second condition of being able to look at your phone while you're driving is when the vehicle in your employ is a 1992 Volkswagen Westphalia, crushing an average of 15 miles below the speed limit in the slow lane. Back at home, I used to drive my standard GTI to the limits of both what my skill level was and to the capacity of what the car was designed to do. Sometimes I'm a little punchy on the gas because I'm running as few as one minutes late, but never more than five minutes late. But mostly, I live in the fast lane for the pure joy of it. I love driving. I'm not reckless, unconfident, uncontrolled, loud, or obnoxious. I don't disrupt traffic. I melt through it. I know how much space I need, how fast each car on the road is going, and I'm constantly recalculating the odds of each car doing anything unexpected and looking for the risks they haven't even noticed yet. 
I can tell which drivers will break unreasonably early at the next light and which vehicles I should stop behind so that they'll accelerate fastest when the light changes. I don't stop behind minivans, delivery vehicles, or Prius if I can help it. If I can get behind a luxury import, any two-door or a motorbike, they'll get off the line quicker and allow me to fly in their wake until such time as I can change lanes in front of the slow slash normal cars and experience clear lane freedom. Before I left, I had most of the timing of the inner city traffic lights memorized so that I could choose the most efficient route to my destination, but also so that I could time my intersection approach to achieve maximum efficiency, ideally without brakes. Granted, my response time was often influenced by both caffeine and a deeply ingrained anxiety that kept my senses on full alert at all times. But there was an element of my experience that has changed my understanding of how cars act on roads. During university, I actually had a job best summarized as test driving cars on closed and open tracks, and we were encouraged to push them to show potential purchasers what they were capable of. I'll clarify, however. I don't really care about cars. I like driving. Honestly, I know very average amount about how cars work. I haven't been responsible for completing any repair to a vehicle except a changing of one set of windshield wipers and a couple flat tires. And I don't think those count. So I like driving and I'm used to driving fast. My new pace of highway life left me with a little spare mental energy. As I drove to Denver then, I afforded myself some occasional glances on my phone. Simple, flat, straight roads and Hober soft brake slowpoke. Honestly, even if something ran onto the road, a wayward deer or a drunken T-Rex, for example, I wouldn't get much swerve out of Hober anyway if it tried, and the brakes weren't much use in emergency situations either. If something happened, I'd most likely just experience whatever was faded. My life was in the universe's hands now, and it would provide any necessary spiritual rumble strips. Jesus, take the wheel. I'm checking my notifications. Life is a team sport. The Instagram notification that had popped up was a comment left by a follower on my latest post. His username caught my eye. I clicked on it and quickly surmised from his photos that he almost certainly lived in Colorado. Embracing a whimsical spontaneity and staying open to all forms of connection, I messaged him immediately asking if he'd like to meet up in the next few days. I wasn't concerned if he said yes or no or what the fuck, Crete, leave me alone. I was just celebrating that I was trying. I was high, not on drugs, but on something stronger. Hope, I guess. I was laser focused on what can I learn, how can I contribute, as the daily mantra. The purpose was simple, the approach was varied, and the outcome was entirely unpredictable. Solving how to accomplish this goal in each moment for the rest of each day provided me with more than enough to focus on without worrying too much about the future. If I was going to live out this dream life, I was going to live it out day by day as best as I could. In this sudden gasping relief from anxiety, my stomach loosened. I might still have anxiety about getting enough done each day, and I'd work on that, but I didn't need to think about whether I was going to get enough done this week or this month. I had no idea where I'd be in a month. If I extract meaning in the moment and connect emotionally to what I'm doing, then I will embody passion. From passion comes both skill and opportunity. We do what we love and we improve quickly. And other people will rush to help those who are chasing their dreams. Skill and opportunity unlock continuous new levels of learning and awareness. More awareness inspires new capabilities and we recognize the progress as growth. Growth feels good, so we get curious about where else we can push ourselves. Curiosity, of course, leads to searching for meaning. And here we go again. Our confidence in finding meaningful connections, stories, and projects rests upon our confidence that meaning and opportunity are always available if we keep our eyes open, our hearts warm, and our intentions selfless. 
When I parked outside Agati's apartment, I was exhausted. As much as I had recovered from all the worst symptoms of sickness, my energy level was naturally slow to rebound. With a scratchy throat, I ascended four flights of stairs in the refurbished brick building, pausing twice to notice that both my legs and my chest were burning. I felt completely out of shape, but this time I was happy despite my physiology. Flushed and smiling as I knocked on his door, Agati opened and welcomed me inside. Born in Kenya, he had resided in the States for a couple decades. He was fit, slim, clearly focused on his health. He moved gently and smiled generously. His thin black dreads were tied back, as understated as every spoken word. He looked like he could be a movie star. Piercingly direct brown eyes, attentive only to that which was deserving of his focus. You could mistake his quiet, subdued tone as some sort of seriousness, or perhaps even shyness, but you would be wrong on both accounts. Agati is simply careful about the words he speaks, the actions he takes, and who he spends his time with. So that he can accomplish more, very little energy is wasted. He brings a ruthless and steady joy to everything that he does. This guy, he gets it. His apartment was minimalist enough that my first question was, did you just move in? And he said that he'd been living there for three years. He showed me past his small bedroom to his large office, where he had set up a double-high queen-size air mattress for me. He would work from the couch while I was there. A compact bathroom featured a framed poem about what love is that I suspected he might have written. The remainder of the living area was open and wonderfully bright, with ceilings twice as high as I would have expected. The kitchen wall featured a massive black and white photograph of two African kids wrestling in a dusty arena surrounded by 50 or so spectators. The image was divided into four adjacent frames, expertly arranged to not distract from the energy of the scene. When I asked, he told me that he had taken that photo in Kenya. The living room wall was framed with tall windows providing a view of downtown and creating a sense of massive space. And yet, the space that he had was very gently populated. A few leafy plants in ceramic pots, an American-sized TV, placed on a giant artist's easel, and a small fur rug stretched out just in front. The oversized tan leather couch and matching chair were worn well enough that it gave the room a vintage, tribal, historic vibe. His wooden coffee table had a glass top with a shelf below, creating a display case, ironically, for a few small trinkets and items. Wood carvings, a harmonica, feathers, a keychain, something made of beads, and in the middle was a record player. Beside the couch on the floor were three or four paintings and photos leaned against a wall, a set of vintage speakers, and a crate full of the requisite records. I was, of course, eager to contribute, so I made a mental note that I would help him hang his pictures before I left. I placed Wilson on the windowsill. He was starting to look a little better after a few days in one warm, stable location. Small green leaves were beginning to bud again. Progress. Agati was in the middle of a workday on the couch, so I went for a long walk to get groceries. That evening, we pulled out our guitars and traded back and forth, either playing songs or starting a loose jam. For his first song, he chose a Mexican love ballad and sang the gentle words in fluent, soulful Spanish. I played an idle, lingering melody over top, just a few accent notes of musical encouragement. He smiled and kept playing, singing words I couldn't understand but still deeply appreciated. When the song was over, he told me about the lyrics, something about the way that the water must love the moon to be so moved by it each day. This guy was an intense combination of steady and passionate. I've been learning Spanish for the last year, he said, without seeking any external validation. He spoke only to share, to connect, to create. I listen to Latin music, learn Spanish songs, and take weekly conversational lessons for $8 an hour with someone in Mexico. Even my phone is switched to Spanish. I thought about how I would benefit greatly by learning Spanish. I thought about how much that sounded like hard work. 
I knew enough French to get by, and when I spent more than a week in a Spanish-speaking country, I could pick up enough to understand a conversation and contribute in a limited, tentative way. I used to fantasize that if I learned Italian, I would meet an Italian girl and marry her and drink good wine and eat pasta forever. Too many dreams, though, and not enough effort. Agati had gone from no Spanish to fluent enough for all practical conversations in just one year, and I had spent the last decade wishing I was better at other languages. Granted, this was never a top priority that felt urgent or necessary, apparently not even with the prospect of an olive-skinned beauty who was out there waiting for me to pick her up with some cheesy Italian pickup line. Our minds are only as expansive as the words we command. All language is connection. Our ideas create our reality. The next day, Agati asked if I wanted to come see his horse. You have a horse? He shrugged, as if that wasn't strange. Why was it strange to me? I realized it was only strange to me because my brain had done some extra work to craft assumptions about who he was, and the horse hadn't factored into that vision. We all operate on the basis of stereotypes, and that's not the same as having negative judgments. With 8 billion people on the planet and millions of cultures, we are always going to be at the mercy of engaging with the unfamiliar by leveraging the limited experience that we have and using it as best we can. Our brains will always aim to steer us to certainty, extrapolating previous conclusions to new settings until they are violated. I don't outright expect a Mormon to beat me at poker, or a white dude speaking English with a Japanese accent, or the two-year-old to drop an F-bomb at the family dinner, but these things are all happening somewhere out there right now. We know that the world is a big place and that anything can happen, but we are surprised daily by life all the same. I was fascinated by him. So, while I hadn't considered a black, minimalist, urban, flat-dwelling horse owner in Denver, I grinned as my limited, boring expectations crumbled like a sandcastle at the mercy of life's changing tides. He had a sneaky trick to secure free parking in a lot attended only by cameras, and he seemed unperturbed about driving to the stables without re-securing the license plate. We all pick our battles against the lazy taxing authorities, and I chuckled that for many of us, not paying for a place to put our vehicles feels like a noble cause. Driving down the highway without a license plate, though, seemed a little equivalent to like wearing shoes and a shirt but leaving your ass out in the cold. Driving without a license plate is like the vehicular equivalent of going streaking. The stables, well inside city limits, were surrounded by freeways, a massive dog park, and horse trails that apparently traced on for miles from fields and into the trees. In the distance, you could see the houses backing onto the forested area, and the icy mountains etched into the deepest background. Probably 100 horses lived there, divided into several fenced areas, each field containing piles of hay, makeshift wooden shelters from wind and snow, and sparse grass thanks to the consistent efforts of the wandering herd. Agati walked slowly to a shed, filled his pockets with treats, walked slowly to the enclosures. There were so many horses milling around and I wondered how he would find his. Agati selected a specific gate, unwrapped the chain, and swung it open long enough for us to both enter. Perhaps 40 horses grazed around us, massive, intelligent, stolid. I felt a little nervous as we walked right through them, and I was careful to stay out of the range of as many back legs as possible. Red, he called out, the loudest I'd heard him yet. From the far end of the gathering, one horse, a warm brown coat with subtle white markings on his face, raised his head and looked directly at Agati. Hey Red, how are you? Agati moved slowly and gently in the direction of the attentive animal. The horse matched Agati's pace, walking intently towards his friend. 
It was touching to see how they both had a similar energy. They each embodied a kind yet indomitable spirit, a quiet intensity that filled the silence and closed the space between them. After they greeted each other, we moved back towards the gate, and I could see the mutual respect, and I could also see them wanting to test each other, pushing for some sort of balance between the desired trust and instinctive independence. They entered a small corral, and Agati casually cracked a harmless rope whip in Red's direction, causing him to begin trotting in circles. One eye on Agati, one eye on me. I leaned against the fence from the outside, wishing I'd worn my cowboy boots at least. Agati took a step in front of the horse and subtly changed the way he flicked the rope. Red responded by changing directions. It was less of an intimidation and more of a way that they could just communicate. Red, Agati seemed to say, I'm pushing you to focus and move with strength, to be more responsive to your environment. I'm asking you to trust me that a well-trained mind and body will make you more content. When I redirect you, or push you to adjust speed, or suddenly tell you to stop, is to make sure our communication is clear. I know what you need from me, and you know what I need from you. We can make each other stronger. Red seemed grateful for his love, eager for the intentional training, and ready for the mindful exercise. I pulled my coat a little higher, feeling a little useless and out of place, but deeply appreciative to witness this relationship. I didn't want to intrude, so I stayed quiet, attending to the beauty of the moment at hand. Would you like to ride him? He asked me. I swallowed and shook my head with a smile. No thanks, I'm good. Agati looked at me as he patted Red. You don't like horses? I answered, it's not that I don't like them, it's that I'm not comfortable around them and so they aren't comfortable around me. I chuckled at childhood flashbacks from horse camp. I was 11 years old and though they paired me with an unruly and truculent horse prince, I would have much preferred that they'd paired me with a painfully attractive university-aged camp instructor, Megan. I didn't like prince and prince didn't like me and Megan suggested that it was my fault. On the last day of camp, he bucked me to the ground and took off to eat apples on a nearby tree. I used that mishap to spend more time with Megan and prince got his fill of apples before they caught him again. We were both happier apart. Agati sensed the reluctance and didn't push the issue. He took off to ride red for an hour. I sat on a stack of blue pallets, watching the sun slip behind the mountains and wondering if the horses felt the sudden drop in temperature like I had. I started thinking about cultural assumptions and new curiosity. I don't spend much time around black people. It's hard to be sure why, honestly. For one, ethnic demographics made it less likely in Calgary, but even then, the existing black community didn't make it on my radar, possibly just due to limited mutual effort. Why did my life feel disproportionately white for how many ethnicities lived in my city? Who makes that choice? Most of what I know about black culture came from movies, and it struck me that means I basically know nothing. I normally don't even care about skin color, and I don't consider skin color to be a direct representation of diversity. So when we say black, could I even unpack what I mean by that term? Do I actually mean the color of the human skin? No, I don't think so. But I probably do mean that there's a part of the lived experience that is influenced by the color of their skin on both an individual and shared level. Then why don't redheads have their own culture? Or do they? I imagine it's because black culture in the USA comes from historic and geographic dislocation through abduction, subsequent oppression through slavery, and systemic segregation even through incarceration and redlining, more than it comes from the actual physical characteristics. It's based not in fact, but in the story that we tell. 
Wealthy religious and political leaders throughout Europe once employed a story that skin color is the arbitrary gradient for who counts as human. Perhaps black people now use a deeper story of ongoing oppression and stubborn resistance for the basis of their wildly diverse culture. Even so, any such story is only perceived as shared. If we were to visit Seattle, New Jersey, Nigeria, and Sydney, black couldn't possibly mean the same thing. So the idea of a uniform culture would be a preposterous myth. All cultures are quite diverse, with nuance shifting mere miles from other communities. Language is an audible form of cultural diversity. Every regional accent and dialect represents a different collective reality. And everyone's voice is different and unique anyways. So what does black mean to someone with dark skin? What do they think it means to everyone else? Who counts as black? What can we even truly generalize? What can you tell me about someone that's living in Harlem that's true for this horse riding cowboy in Colorado or a CEO in Jakarta? When we distill down the consistent similarities, what are we actually left with? Even in my obviously limited experience in these kinds of conversations, I have found that the experiences and perspectives of minorities are as multivariate and individualistic as the people providing them. And so I try to shirk off the cultural narratives and surface-based assumptions embedded within identity politics and Hollywood caricatures in favor of conversations filled with more individualistic curiosity and discovery of them. I haven't seen a black urban cowboy before, so I want to learn about him without generalizing his experience to all black people or all cowboys or all urbanites. When it comes to unpacking racism, we could talk more with individuals about their lived experience of how their appearance, accent, or name influences how they are treated on a daily basis. I was sure those conversations were happening, and I just hadn't spent much time participating. Generalizations were easier. As we drove back downtown, I asked him about how he had experienced racism. He spoke about how suffocating it feels to be treated in accordance with someone else's judgments, rather than as a response to who he really is. I got to acknowledge that many people are simply acting out of a narrative that they've been subscribed to from childhood and without their real consent, but he admitted that it offers little comfort when a white suburban woman passes him on the street while he's walking up to a friend's house and asks, are you supposed to be here? He told me sometimes the stable staff think he's stealing a horse when he shows up. He told me a surprising percentage of white people cross the street or fumble with their phones uncomfortably when they see him walking towards them. He spoke with disappointment, but it was laced with bitterness. Often, he almost whispered, looking straight in the windshield with narrowed eyes. Often, I cross streets before they do just to make it easier on them. I hated the idea of a gentle, compassionate agati taking a wide route around someone's fear-based worldview, as if they somehow deserved the safety of their toxic, cloudy bubble. For him, it was just easier to carve a wider path than to see them squirm as he approached, a communal tragedy unfolding upon sidewalks. We spoke about the good intentions and the tinge of inadvertent extremism woven into the Black Lives Matter movement. While BLM obviously has done some good to bring an important conversation to the forefront of social discourse, many supporters did considerable damage to the quality of the conversation by vilifying anyone who didn't outright agree with everything the movement encapsulated, including, in my opinion, using catchy and ambiguous phrases, lazy hashtags to make anger bite-sized and trendy, along with distracting from core issues by chasing symbolic wins. You might agree that each human has infinite and equal value not directly tied to their economic or social output. 
But if I were to simply say that all lives matter, then we all sit on our hands and stare at the floor. That doesn't mean the latter isn't true. Either all lives don't matter at all, or they all matter the same amount, and I can't imagine we benefit from complicating it any further. But somehow we can say every child matters right now in Canada, and we'll buy a t-shirt that's orange for $20. What happens when these kids grow up? Do they still all matter? Here's where we're at. The amount that all lives matter offends someone is the direct measure of how much needless, noisy politicization they have accidentally allowed to seep into the deep, tribal crevices of their brain. We're no longer seeking truth, we're just picking sides. The utility and limitations of anger must be considered by anyone championing any cause. We all struggle with what we should do with our anger when we look at how the world is going. Left unchecked or suppressed, anger pushes and justifies toxic polarization. I recognize the pattern of anger as it came up around environmentalism, vaccine mandates, and their opposers, and other contentious issues. If you're not with us, you're part of the problem. Really? Must we? Many activists seek to deplatform and vilify anyone who criticizes fragments of a monolithic movement. J.K. Rowling has something to say about that, too. This reflective divisiveness means that if someone questions anything about BLM rhetoric or makes logical arguments around the ethics or predicted failures of COVID policy or remains suspicious about the quality of green energy sources, they become the enemy of whatever groupthink is persisting. The opposing agenda-driven media sources and governments are happy to label dissenters as racist, anti-vaxxer, earth killers, and the problem. That requirement for total and unwavering obedience and unity strikes me as deeply concerning, and I tend to distance myself from any movement that requires such untenable commitments. Upholding the deeply entrenched false dichotomies and encouraging ideological polarization is literally intellectual terrorism. It's an attack on truth. Yes, there is injustice. Yes, it can make us angry. Yes, urgent action is needed. But if we embrace polarized rhetoric as progress or justice, we would be doing more harm to whatever cause that we actually believe in. Black versus white, red versus blue, anti versus pro. These framings show us where cultural conversations are most stunted. It's not that trendy anger and simplistic messaging are simply ineffective in the long term. Such an approach is counterproductive to achieving any type of mutual understanding and peace. It seems strange to have to say that we won't solve any of these problems by putting anger on broadcast and pressuring compliance. I'm not against BLM. I'm against the emotional rhetoric and lack of transparency. More than anything, I'm against the common accusation that if I do not actively participate in BLM activities and support their messaging, then I am racist. When did BLM gain a monopoly on pursuing equality? If a black person believes all lives matter, are they racist against black people too? We have become so reactive to the idea of a less reactive person. I expect us to have better conversations about things we disagree about. Our mental and emotional impatience and our lack of curiosity during conflict have left us weak. When faced with contention and controversy, the atrophied muscles of slow thinking and thoughtful speech, they've left us incapable of solving complex issues. I wonder, do we want to be angry so that we have purpose and conviction? Anger gives us a story to tell ourselves about how we are worthy and even superior. Anger is useful for helping us discover something that is wrong and unjust, but I'm starting to think that anger as a bonding agent will fracture any worthy cause eventually. I recognize that all my starting questions were really just a place for me to begin learning about more in the future. 
I asked Agati what he thought of my idea of reflective and wellness sessions as a means of creating value for hosts. I fumbled through my words and felt sheepish, as if I was selling cheap knives door to door. He let me keep speaking until I trailed off mid-sentence. He nodded with encouragement and said that it was a good idea. Would you... Do you want to try a session? Well, he said, you're leaving tomorrow and I don't really have time in the morning, but I think people will take you up on it in some form. I nodded. I was encouraged, but frustrated. I was still fresh off my darkest days, ready to test my skills and push myself to contribute something, anything. And here I was, not really doing anything but gawking at how cool Agati's life was. Can I help you hang those pictures leaning against the wall? What? No, man, he chuckled. I like them arranged like that. When I left Agati's place, I silently celebrated the level of intentionality in the few possessions he owned, the commitment to mastering his passions, languages, guitar, horses, and fitness. He was steady, thoughtful, and whole. I realized that he was not someone I needed to contribute to, but someone I could learn from. If we want to learn a new skill, we should just get started. If we want to get good at something, get excited for the time you'll spend learning. Plan to move slow so as to avoid impatience. Commit to the playful struggle. My restlessness of feeling like I was not accomplishing anything was simmering. It was hot enough that I was out of excuses and bored by fear. I just needed a chance to make a difference for someone. Who needs something that I have to give? The Instagram follower responded. He lived less than an hour west towards the mountains. He was interested in meeting, and better yet, he was open to recording a conversation for my podcast. That was all I knew about him, but it was enough for me to leave Denver and drive out to Boulder. 